Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Mark Taylor, who at Macquarie University as part of the Environmental Sciences and Human Services, about heavy metals, about environmental contaminants, brains and learning. So perhaps, Mark, just to open up that conversation, I know it's a vast area, but would you like us to give a bit of an overview, firstly, about that area and the prevalence really of those contaminants for young people in their brains. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Andrew. Yes, so the work that we've been doing here now for some time has focused on special risk areas, as you you might call them. That that would be mining communities. And they're a special risk area because these mining communities are processing and extracting toxic metals, which would include lead, zinc at high levels, copper high levels, cadmium, arsenic, etc., And what we do know is in each of those locations that there's an increased amount of uh, toxicants in the air and what goes up comes down and what comes down usually ends up in children's mouths. And also in some of those towns, we know that there's also smelting processes that influences the quality of the air, sulfur dioxide emissions and elevated or increased concentrations of particles, all of which have adverse outcomes on children's respiratory uh, health. In addition to that, we've also done work uh, looking at um, urban communities where there's a legacy. Obviously, most of our urban cities now, the inner city areas are gentrified. People have bought the houses, the factories have gone, they've been turned over to flats or units, and people have been renovating the properties. But there's a long history and legacy of contaminants that have been released and then stored in soils and dust, which Again, those provide a potential route of exposure. And in addition to that, we've got this, you know, the forever chemicals, which you may have heard of, which is um, the perfluorinated chemicals, the per and uh, polyfluorinated chemicals. And they're basically the chemicals that have been used in firefighting foam, but also a myriad of other uses in furnishing Scotchgard. You probably remember Scotchgard in good old days. Scotchgard worked really well, but it is a forever chemical. It doesn't really break down clothing you might see your children's clothing has got teflon or you buy a shirt which is creaseless it's got teflon in it which again it's it's one of the uh, products of these forever chemicals it's a perfluorinated chemical and we've been interested in working in that space uh, because of the increased risk of concern particularly around communities associated with the rwf bases such as williamtown oakey uh, elizabeth for example or even those base, uh, bases, um, which are you know naval naval bases where they've used firefighting foam, along with other places, mm-hmm. and so you know that's where we've been working in in those spaces. We've been particularly focused on children, um, because children, as you would know full well, they're most at risk because their neurological systems and their behavioural systems are all developing, and their you know any insult to their bodies is more likely to have a a greater effect. They've got smaller bodies, a smaller volume. So any toxicant exposure is is worse for small people than big people. And with grownups, 
we tend to absorb less uh, than small uh, uh, growing children and and the risk is less because I, again because our neurological systems have, have finished and, and our skeletal systems have finished development so the risk is lower than what it is for children and of course finally you know young children especially the ones that are aged between sort of one and three they love putting things in their mouths as part of their normal standard exploratory behavior and of course it doesn't matter how many times you say please don't do that please don't do that take it out your mouth you can't stop it and so in communities where there's lots of environmental contamination in soils and dust and it gets inside homes you know that's a cause for concern so let's mark if we can talk about some of the adverse effects and then we might talk about some of the indicators and then we can talk a little bit about what we can do to try and protect young people from this type of contamination. I suppose in terms of adversity, the first question that comes to mind to me is, is this something that just specific areas such as military bases or mining towns should be concerned about, or is it a more broad issue? On the whole, the risk is greatest in these sort of special risk areas where there's a long history and even ongoing um, emissions and depositions of contaminants. We know that because, well, you know, if there's not, if, if you go to the countryside where there's no industry, there's no contaminants. So you can play in the soil and eat the soil and roll around it and you're not going to get exposed to these particular contaminants. And so the evidence shows, particularly with respect to environmental lead exposure, that the risks are greatest and the blood lead measures, for example, are greatest in Mount Isa, Broken Hill and Port Piri, where there are ongoing operations. However, in the cities, for example, we, you know, the concentrations remain very high in the soils, in, in, in particularly in the older inner parts of cities. And there is a potential there that children <clears throat> can ingest that soil. And also the houses are older. And then when people modernize the old houses, they buy an old house and they do it up. And often people do that either with young children or just before they have young children. That can result in the release of lead contamination held in ceiling dusts or behind the walls or they may start sanding the paint and the paints lead based paint and that generates pollution oh sorry contamination and that contamination can then later be ingested so the the risks are different in different places but they still exist in all locations but the ongoing unceasing persistent risk remains in these sort of special interest areas but then of course as you know last year we had a huge dust fires uh, sorry, uh, bushfires, and they created huge amounts of dust and particulates, which caused, you know, lots of respiratory issues, and uh, there was an increased number of there were extra deaths, excess deaths, as they call them, on the registry, which is largely related to people with existing morbidities associated with respiratory health. So the risk of environmental exposure and adverse outcomes is really everywhere, but particularly with children, there are sort of areas of focus that we should be concerned about. Thank you. That's really great to get an overview of that. So some of our listeners will be working in schools or in a variety of settings where they're seeing young people in relation to their learning. What sorts of indicators do you think would start to make you puzzle a bit about this as a possibility for that young person? Well, we know the research is really clear and we know that uh, environmental exposures, particularly in, let's, the toxic metals in regard to lead is a good one. We know that early life exposures can denude intellect, loss of IQ points, 
cause development delay and is also associated with ADHD behaviours in children. And in any case, if a child is highly distracted, has got uh, other behavioural problems and has you know, got development delay, the development delay might come because they're distracted, because they're not focused on the task, they kind of can't. You know, it becomes quite clear, I think, and, and I can speak from that from my own personal experience with my, one of my own kids. You know, even in preschool, it becomes clear that they've got certain sort of behaviours that make them anomalous. And you know, the really good preschool teachers, they should pick up on that. And ours did. And, and at that point, that's when you might start to think about, you know, seeing um, a psychologist and having an assessment and then thinking about what intervention measures you could implement. But if you're, you have a young child and you're living in a high risk area, special risk area, and they're eating the soil, which some kids do because normal, yeah. but you know, the soil's contaminated, you know, that child is likely to be at a much greater risk than other children. And so you can get some simple blood tests done to see if they've been exposed. You know, it's true that some children, they don't really seem to display any adverse effects, but some really, some do. And you just have to sort of play it by ear and assess your child. And obviously that's harder if it's your first child, because you don't really have a benchmark, but you should have friends and he, he should have peers and it should be clear about how their development is progressing. But as you would know, as this is your space, all children have a different journey. Mm. And, you know, I think it's too easy to panic too early if your child is not performing as they should. Some, some develop really rapidly, some develop more slowly. But if they are a bit behind, I think it's worth investigating to see if there's been any exposures, particularly if they're in an obvious risk area, and then find ways of mitigating that risk and then addressing the adverse outcomes by some targeted invent, uh, intervention. Yeah, so just to summarise that and check whether I've got it, there's sort of two major indicators of problems in terms of concentration and inputting new knowledge. And yes. the other one sort of almost like a regulation of behaviour, of, of settling and calming. Is that have I That's got correct, it? yeah. Some of them, I think they're quite impulsive. Uh, let, children who've been lead exposed can be quite impulsive and quite agitated. And so it becomes clear whether your child sort of fits into that, you know, fits in and sits with other kids in the preschool if they're at preschool they will pick it up pretty quick so obviously having a blood test will basically confirm whether there's been contamination that's correct so let's see if we can give uh, people a bit of hope around this how how changeable is that situation and what can we do to kind of improve upon it? well with all environmental exposures the key thing is to take the person away from the exposure or to take the exposure away from the person then the problem solved that's not always that easy if you're living in a community where where there's ongoing mining activities or you've got a house which is close to a main road you can't deal you can't deal with the emissions coming out of diesel vehicles etc so therefore you have to think around what those strategies are but there are ways we know for example with blood lead exposure it stays in the blood for 30 days. That's the half-life. And then it halves, and then it halves again in another 30 days. So if you stop the exposure, the levels will fall. And, you know, any you know, long, further compounding long-term damage will remit. Having said all of that, what we do know, for example, with lead exposure is that 
the effects are lifelong, which is why intervening and mitigating exposure as early as possible is really key. So, for example, if you're living in a place where your child, you've got a, a garden uh, which has got lead contaminated soils, you can do something about that. You can grow the grass a bit longer. Don't don't shave the lawn too low to generate dust. Leave it nice and long. Mulch the garden soils. If you're doing a veggie patch, which I think is fantastic stuff for kids, you know, do a raised bed, put clean soil in and start again and just reduce the access to places in the garden that, you know, may be potentially be contaminated. If you've got peeling paint, it's an old house. Again, seal that paint, reduce the risks inside the house. Old carpets, old furnishings uh, will collect and hold. The, I mean, carpets. Carpets are filthy things, really. Anyway, you know whether or not there's a um, you know there's a there's a contamination issue. It's quite hard to clean a carpet properly. I think everybody knows that. And so, if you are have the chance and you are replacing your floors, I think having a hard floor of some sort is a much better outcome. It's easier to keep clean. Um, it's it, you know it's um, it reduces the accumulation of contaminants. And so, there are some things that you can do. And of course. The standard operating procedure for all mums and dads should be make sure your child washes their hands regularly, especially before eating. Not that easy having small children. <laughs> I, I know that. Um, you know, my boys are pretty good now, but you know, getting them to do it on a regular basis, even after using the bathroom, is not the easiest thing. Have you washed your hands? Yes, Dad. I didn't hear this. I didn't hear the tap going. Oh yeah, Dad, you're right. <laughs> and, you know, and so unfortunately, what it means is that mums and dads have to be super vigilant, but you can get, I think it's a, it's training. It becomes, you know, you take your shoes off outside. Don't, don't be walking in the house with your shoes, tramping in, you know, stuff from the yard because outside stuff becomes inside stuff. That's well established. You can mitigate that. And then, you know, if we're looking at a child that's got respiratory uh, challenges there are asthma sufferers of course you'll have your medication uh if you're living in a in a smelter town it could be an aluminum smelter or it could be you know um, a, a lead smelter for example or some other type of metal smelter it's very difficult to deal with that because you can't you really need to move or if you're in the house you could think about using um these new super filters that we can apply these air filters that clean the air they reduce the number of uh, particulates in the atmosphere. You have to seal the house, close the house, and then run those filters and keep the filters clean. And they are actually reasonably effective at reducing the burden of dust and particles inside a home, which would improve the respiratory health of your child. And the name of those filters is what? HEPA filters. HEPA. High Efficiency Particulate Air Filter. HEPA. H-E-P-A. P-A. Fantastic. So... Um, Mark, you're also involved in VeggieSafe, is that correct? Um, yes, yeah, so we started a program seven years ago uh, called VeggieSafe. And um, this was because people would they'd say to us, well, we want to have a garden and grow our own veggies. But, you know, we live in the city. We're not sure if our soil is clean and, uh, you know, I just have contaminants in it. And so we decided to set up a community program so people could send us their dirt from their garden. We can analyze it and they can go, Ah, okay, it's clean, it's not clean, not clean, we build a raised bed or remove it, raised beds much more efficient. 
And since then, we've had more than 20,000 samples from right across Australia. And you can see that data on a, a website called mapmyenvironment.com. And it gives mums and dads confidence that they can use their gardens for uh, uh, producing homegrown produce. And I think, well, we know now that 50% of Australians produce some sort of food, more than 50% some sort of food in their own garden. And in particular, uh, for young kids, getting their hands dirty, getting out in the garden, interacting with nature, it's a hugely, and understanding where food comes from, it's a hugely important educational journey. And, you know, you'd, you may have heard of this, Andrew, there's a, something called nature deficit disorder. Mm. As, as we've moved into smaller homes, we've become more, you know, iPads, the stealer of childhoods, people are looking at iPads, people are not interacting with trees and gardens, people have lost connection with nature. And so having a garden, you know, a veggie garden in your backyard and knowing that the soils are clean and <clears throat> they're not going to produce food which is contaminated means that your children can enjoy it, you can enjoy it, and there are all those additional uh, intangible benefits that arise from doing that work. So we then developed in 2017, and the funding for that's just run out, a sister program called Dust Safe, where we analyze people's dust from inside their homes. And we've now, uh, I think we've had about 1,300 homes have sent samples from around Australia, and we've analyzed those. And all this data, as I say, is available on that website that I just mentioned. And we can show from that that outdoors becomes indoors, i.e., what we see outdoors is a strong relationship to what we see indoors. So there's all sorts of advice that flows from that take your shoes off, put some mats, put a mat outside, have a mat on the inside. To, so you capture it on the outside and then you capture it on the inside. Um, vacuum the floors regularly or, or wet mop them. If you got, get buying a new vacuum, most of them have it these days, get them with a HEPA filter on it, which is an ultra fine filter. Because obviously if you're sucking air into your vacuum, it's got to come out somewhere. So you don't want to suck it in and blow it out the back end. So having a HEPA filter strips out all the super fine particles and, and, and they're the ones that are of concern. And so there's lots of things you can do that can help mitigate that risk. And, and we can assist with that. So they're both the veggie safe and the dust safe programs, people send their soil or their dust to us and we analyze it and to see if there's metal contaminants in there that they should be concerned about. And we've done quite a bit of work in that space. I'm trying to imagine your postal inbox at Macquarie University full of soil and dust. It must be very exciting. Well, yeah, but, you know, people were complaining about it. That's right. Former departmental manager was going, there's all this postage here. This is just causing a problem. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> you know, we have to build a social license here by serving the community and providing them with science that they want and need so that they can, you know, better their lives. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. Money's mm -hmm. changed. People are happier. You know, we're producing, you know, yes, you're right. It's just dirt, bags <laughs> of dirt. And or, or the worst, it's not the dirt, it's the, it's the vacuum cleaner dust that people send the vacuum cleaner dust as part of the dust safe program. Yeah. And what I will tell you is the stuff you see in vacuum cleaner dust is not really mentionable on this podcast. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> it is. And, but when you start to look at it in detail, it then makes you realize, mm, maybe I should keep my house clean. And actually, just on that, can I just tell you a little anecdote about cleaning? There's two things I want to talk about there. One is a study that we did in Jakarta, which came out in 2019. 
And then another one is a study which isn't out yet, which relates to microplastics. So the Jakarta study was looking at lead contamination. And we know that you can still buy lead-based paint in Indonesia. And so we went to these houses. We did about 100 of these houses. And we did wipes on the floors. We did stuff on the walls. We did XRFing on the paints and the soils outside. Those homes, even meant people are not particularly well off, they were as clean as can be really clean external environment is not so clean but it turned out that most of the homes that we went to are from um, their muslim families and it is tradition in those custom in those homes to wet mop the floor in the morning and in the evening they clean the floor it's standard operating procedure and that meant basically anything that got in the house didn't hang around really long enough for anybody to roll around in and contaminate themselves. So that was quite an interesting, we hadn't expected that outcome, but that's, it's a custom or a tradition um, of Muslim families. And that meant that they had, the homes were really clean. And then then moving on to this other topic I want to mention, this other anecdote, which relates to a study that we've, we're just about finished writing up about center with journal we looked at microplastics in homes and of course that's another emerging contaminant people are worried about microplastics on carpets and clothing and, and vinyl floors and you know various other sources most people are worried about microplastics in fish the reality is how often do you eat fish not that often right but you're living inside your home people spend 90 percent of the time inside the home and they're inhaling the air, obviously, and anything in that air in the home. And we know that microplastics are prevalent, absolutely prevalent in, in, in the indoor environment. We've measured it. And what we showed in this study, and the results are not published yet, we were able to show quite clearly that people who vacuumed regularly had lower concentrations of microplastics in their homes. So cleaning is the key. Some yeah. people who report in this study didn't vacuum. They vacuumed less than once a month. I mean, it's quite hard, it's, it's quite hard to imagine not vacuuming, vacuuming with such low frequency. But those, you know, the less, less vacuuming and less cleaning that people did, the worse the exposures were, which mirrors what we found in Jakarta for, for a different type of contaminant, that's trace metals. So the key is, you know, you ask me, what can mums and dads do? Just stay on top of the cleaning, yeah. reduce the ingress of contaminants into the home and just stay on top of cleaning. So before I rush off and grab my vacuum and start cleaning furiously, and thank you for those words, I also know you're doing some studies on children's milk teeth. And I was just wondering what you're hoping to find. Ah, yeah. Well, we haven't started that. We applied for a citizen science grant. There was a new call. And um, what we want to do is to look at children's milk teeth and we will analyze those for trace metals and uh, organic contaminants because they are stored in the in the uh, calcium and also in the dentine um, of the tooth and the teeth provide a nice archive because they start to grow within i think about two weeks of uh, conception and then many of them are fully fully formed some of them anyway in the first you know the first two years of life and then they start falling out from five slash six and so they give a nice image of early life exposures over the first couple of thousand days of life and then we were also going to do as part of that study we were going to collect the obstetrics data so we know about what happens you know uh, what what's been going on with the mum and then 
you know, the child weight gestation period, uh, height, head circumference, you know, a whole raft of data. And then we're also going to collect the Australian Early Development Census data, which is the data that they collect in a child when they first enter primary school. And we were going to do a meta-analysis and look at all of the data and how that might relate to trace metals, which are stored in the teeth, such as fluoride, manganese, lead, cadmium, etc., along with organic chemicals such as pesticides. And we hope to be have enough teeth. I reckon, I think people are going to like this between a thousand and two thousand teeth in order to be able to tease out some of the relationships between early life exposure and outcomes, birth outcomes, and then primary school entrance outcomes. And so effectively we have three time points. And you know, one of our, what we do know with teeth is that kids who have poor dental health, it can be related to a whole raft of factors, but poor dental health influences adult dental health. And also poor dental health is associated with kids who are less frequent attendees at school. And so that means they're likely to have worse outcomes educationally because they're not attending school. And we also know that children who uh, come from remote uh, uh, rural areas and indigenous communities, they have typically worse dental health, and especially indigenous communities. So where there's poor water supply or the water's warm or it's not very nice tasting, often it's cheaper in the in the local uh, petrol station to buy fizzy drinks. Because mm. a bottle of water is $3.50, a bottle of Coke is what, two bucks? Yes. We drink the Coke and we know what the outcome is. Mm. And so the program is covers about educating people about the condition of the tooth. We'll do analysis of the surface of the tooth as well as the trace metals and give mums and dads some feedback about the quality of the teeth and what they can do to intervene to make sure dental health is good a really helpful study thank you for embarking on it it's hopefully it gets funding and gets really great support so just to try to summarize some of the the key takeaways that i've got and you can perhaps elaborate uh, and correct me obviously environmental environmental contaminants do have a, a role to play uh, they are particularly prevalent in some areas of australia particularly mining communities military areas and so on Although it's something that can apply to all children, it can show up in their behaviour as erratic or dysregulated behaviour. It can certainly show up in their learning as a, a problem of acquiring new learning or concentration. And in some ways, there are many things that we can all do to really think about lowering the amount of risk that all children have by regular cleaning, by using air filters, by vacuuming regularly, wet mopping, uh, but also making sure that in areas where things are a bit toxic, that we don't allow too much of what's outside to come inside by having some rituals which probably mirror the sorts of protective mechanisms we have against COVID as well. That's correct, actually. That is entirely correct. You couldn't summarise it better. Thank you, Mark. That's very kind of you. All right. Well, it's been a delight to talk to you and I really appreciate your time. And I also want to just say how important the work that you're doing is. So thank you for doing it. No, no, thank you very much. And, you know, we're all, we're here to help people if people want to get their samples analysed. And um, I think the most important thing is there are solutions. People shouldn't be panicking. Exposures are modifiable. Therefore, we can make behavioural changes to reduce and mitigate those risks. 
So people listening to this that are concerned about their soil or their dust and want to get it analysed should contact who? Uh, contact Mark Taylor or just go online, look, Google VeggieSafe. If you Google VeggieSafe, I think we come up number one or two and that's V-E-G-E-S-A-F-E and it'll come up and just follow the links. And there's a link on the VeggieSafe site to our dust programme as well. And it's that's it. It'll all be self-explanatory. Thanks so much. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. Find more resources for supporting the mental health and well-being of young people on the Generation Next website. While you're there, consider becoming a member of the Online Learning Hub, where you can access practical sessions from leading experts on demand. There are many sessions available in the ever-expanding learning library, and each session has an instantly downloadable certificate of completion, which you may even be able to use to claim professional development. You can also feel great about your membership, with all proceeds supporting Generation Next not-for-profit initiatives, including this podcast. You may also like to read more in Generation Next's Young Minds books. Both books contain practical and easy-to-read chapters on a range of topics from Australia's leading practitioners. Andrew Fuller's chapter, What is Resilience and How to Do It, is in the book Growing Happy, Healthy Young Minds, available on the Generation Next website at www.generationnext.com.au. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please share this podcast and your learnings with others. Until next time, thanks for listening and for all you do to support young people and our communities.